0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In
1: 1628, a ship called the Batavia set sail from the Netherlands. It would never reach its intended destination. Instead, almost eight months after departure... The ship was dashed on a coral reef. And what followed is considered by some to be one of the worst shipwrecks in history. And yet, the story is not particularly well known, though it certainly should be. Although many of the ship's crew and passengers survived, having been hurriedly packed onto the Batavia's smaller craft, what befell them when they reached a nearby island was both horrifying and tragic although there were many moments of incredible human compassion and courage as well. Coming across the story of the Batavia, today's guest chose to turn it into an absolutely gripping and incredibly moving novel. I'm delighted to welcome Costa short story winner Jess Kidd, whose work includes Dirty Little Fishes, himself, Things in Jars and The Hoarder. Today Jess is with us to talk about... The Night Ship, a novel about the Batavia, which is based on extensive research that took her from Europe to Australia to acquaint herself with the sources, archives and stories of those on board. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors, Jess.
2: Thank you so much. As people may not be
1: familiar with the history around which you build your novel, The Night Ship, it might make sense to start by recapping some of the key details. So can you tell us about the Batavia where she was built, how big she was for whom she was built?
2: Certainly this was a story that I hadn't come across either and I was casting around to write another historical novel and a friend of mine bought me this story and said you've just got to base something on this it's a phenomenal story it's one of the most compelling real life shipwreck, mutiny and murder stories that I've come across so basically the Batavia is a flagship of the Dutch East India Company and so she's built just outside Amsterdam and she set sail at the end of 1628 there's lots of things welling up on board there's a mutiny welling up on board and there's a few decisions made by the skipper which basically land her on a coral reef off the coast of Western Australia so she's around these barren islands there's no natural resources there and so of the people who originally set sail around about 340 people set sail. So that would have been crew, some soldiers as well, going over to the Spice Islands. There would have been families of crew, a lot of people, perhaps not listed, and amongst them around 30 children and women, too. But what happened later was when the upper merchant, who is effectively in charge, returned to the island to save the survivors. He found that around about 140 women, children and men had been murdered in that short space of time. So... For me, it was a combination of different things, this kind of compelling story, but also the idea of the setting as well. And as soon as I heard more, I just had to start rummaging around and finding out more, really.
1: So your friend introduced you to this story. Can you tell us something about the research you did to unearth more of it? I know that in your notes of thanks, you humbly acknowledge that the book was an act of teamwork. I think all books are. Can you reveal something of the processes involved?
2: It was a real collaboration because, first of all, I hadn't come across the story. This was a period of history I knew nothing about. I'd previously written historical fiction. I'd set something in Victorian times, and so this was going back far earlier. My research tends to be, I gravitate towards something that's quite tangible, although I obviously like storytelling in my stories. So it really was necessary for me to travel across the world in order to find out more. It was a mixture of visits. I went to Amsterdam. I looked at a lot of paintings of the period, first of all. I read everything that I could in terms of non-fiction and fiction on this story. I also visited the museums and the Shipwreck Museum in Fremantle, also the museum in Geraldton, and I looked at some of the artefacts from the Batavia. And it was really also when I went to the Abrolhos Islands, flew over in a light aircraft. I was very fortunate in terms of the weather allowing me to do this and I couldn't visit Beacon Island which is the site of most of the survivors being landed but I could go to East Wallaby which gave me a real sense of the isolation and the weather coming in and it was around about the same time as the ship wrecked so all of these elements added up and at this point I was just gathering this information and I had a growing idea of who would be telling the story what point of view we would hear this story from and also I was fortunate enough to be able to roam around on a replica of the Batavia, which really helped because a lot of my research is quite physical. I really like to experience as much as possible for myself so I can really get a sense of that kind of immersive world I want to build.
1: Richard Holmes calls it footprint research. And I think it's so important when you're trying to get into a completely different world. Yeah, on
2: your own.
1: Absolutely. I gather that the Batavia was one of 150 merchant ships built by the Dutch East India Company by the mid-1600s, and that together they made some 5,000 voyages from the Netherlands to Asia. So when the Batavia set sail on her maiden voyage, 27th of October 1628, Where
2: was she headed? What was the purpose of her voyage? She was heading out to Batavia from the Netherlands. So it would be modern-day Indonesia, Jakarta. She was really going over there with this crew and so many different resources as well, money to bring back the spies from these islands, also soldiers as well to enforce the people who were occupying these islands too. So these ships were really designed for these extremely difficult conditions, extremes of hot and cold. They weren't really destined to make a number of journeys. They were expendable in a way. There would be several journeys because it was so harsh and they were very solid ships. But Batavia of her time was real state-of-the-art stuff. But the conditions on board would have absolutely been appalling. And the length of time, I think I write in the novel something along the lines of people were being born and dying. In the passage of time, it took months and months to sail across. And it was treacherous as well, not only in terms of the food and the water provision, but also in terms of the illness on board, which could be rife.
1: And you mentioned that not only on board are the sailors and those working for the company, But you found that there were over 300 passengers on board as well.
2: What can you tell us about some of these people and why they were on board as well? There would have been a selection of people on board. So there would have been the sailors, the crew, the soldiers who would have been stowed away in the Orlop deck, the cow deck. So they would have spent most part of the journey actually lying down in a very low space. There would have been family members of the sailors going out. A lot of them would be listed, but some would have just stowed away on board along with them. The children on board, of which we know there are 30, would have been mostly cabin boys, but potentially also the crew members' children as well. And when I heard that, I was really interested to know more.
1: Yes, so one of the main characters in your novel is a little girl who's on board ship with her nanny. What did you discover about the children? And I'm quite interested in why you decided to take that particular perspective of writing from a child's point of view.
2: I really wanted to look at the voices that weren't represented in the remains of the Batavia. So we have two written accounts. So one is from the upper merchants. All of tension emerges from their relationship. So we have the upper merchant, Pelsart, the undermerchant, Cornelius, and we also have the skipper. So these three men are effectively in charge of the ship. And so really I wanted to look at the voices that weren't represented by those accounts. I also knew this would be an incredibly difficult story to tell. It's very violent in parts. And as you say in the outset, there are instances of real heroic actions and really compassionate actions, especially as the shipwrecks started to unravel and afterwards. So there's like extremes of good and bad behaviour on the islands. But for me, it was just trying to find a point of view that could really allow us to experience that world and have that kind of duality of the child and the adult world. I also write in present tense and I wanted that kind of immediacy of a child's experience and the things that potentially they might not understand that obviously the reader would.
1: Yes, I remember when I read The Wide Sargasso Sea and you have that opening from a child's perspective and it allows you to do so many interesting things and I feel like you've done the same in bringing us to look at pretty terrible things, but because we're from a child's perspective, we can read them. In the novel, we learn from the little girl we're following, Maken, as she moves around the ship that life on board was highly socially stratified. Could you describe this hierarchy for us and where people were allowed? You've already mentioned the Orlop up and how you figured this out from your research.
2: Yes, this was largely from clambering around a replica, actually. It was a very stratified situation on board the Batavia. So this was really down to the crew in the most part. But also this carried on to the detriment, really, of the survivors on the island. Because when the undermerchant took charge, his authority wasn't really questioned until it was far too late. A lot of the accounts really look at the psychopath basically on board from the start and how it unraveled and why he took the decisions he did to basically pick off a lot of the survivors. But for me it was more interesting to look at, again, the child point of view and wonder how a child could navigate her way around and access all areas in order to bring us to these different parts of the ship that a potentially highborn child wouldn't have had access to. So she does take on a disguise. Now this isn't very new in my work. <laughs> I have a Victorian heroine who does the same in my novel Things in jars so I, I do have a fascination with this kind of not only fluidity of taking on different genders especially at a very strictly designated time but also in trying to change their appearance in order to see the world in a different way, if you like. So this allows her to roam around the ship in a way she potentially couldn't have. The passengers were kept very separate. The highborn passengers were kept separate from the rest of the crew. But the crew members had their wives and children with them on the other decks. And these conditions were extremely cramped. So even the kind of first class passengers would have been really roughing it.
0: Airplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects.
1: We manage to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on
0: suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress.
1: You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you live on to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile
0: is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
1: After almost eight months on the voyage, things begin to go wrong on the ship. And there are allegations that the skipper and the junior merchant Cornelius, you mentioned, are planning a mutiny. What was their plan? And did you discover evidence about why they wanted to mutiny?
2: When we look into Pelsar, the upper merchant's account of the trials that took place after the remaining survivors were saved on the island. They actually executed some of the men on another island who were considered too dangerous to be taken back to Batavia to stand trial. So there was a sense that tensions were arising because of the way that the organisation of the boat happened. So we have the upper merchant who effectively is a merchant, but he has overall say of where the boat's going, what it's doing, whereas the skipper has control over the crewmen at the time. And so... These men knew each other, they hated each other, they'd met before. And so when they were brought together on the ship, this is where these kind of factions started emerging of some of the crew, or most of the crew, the senior crew following the skipper. And I think that in a way there is evidence to suggest that this was stoked and stirred by the undermerchant. He'd set sail with a bit of a history of his own, a failed business. And so all of these tensions added up to the extent that In a particularly bad storm, the Batavia went off on her own, really. There's grounds to suggest that maybe the skipper had asked for the lantern to be turned off or blown out. And so there is a suggestion that this was a deliberate act. And so... Batavia was already floundering away from the convoy of the other ships that would have come to her aid. So she was out on her own in the ocean at that point. And when the survivors are landed in the early days, there are some suggestions from somebody who was approached by the other mutineers. So we start having a sense of gossip going around the island. Now this individual who puts this idea is found with their throat cut. So from the very early stage we have a sense that it starts to ramp up the tension even further so that the mutineers potentially know because the upper merchant's gone, because the skipper's gone to get help with a longboat and effectively maroon the survivors on these islands, that if they do come back in the unlikely event, they do come back and save them, this misdemeanour will be known to other people. And it came with a very harsh penalty.
1: Now, I don't want to give too many spoilers because I feel very much that people should read this wonderful novel for themselves. But the body of your novel concerns the events following the shipwreck in June 1629. And these events were utterly gripping to read. And it struck me that you must have had to make some quite difficult decisions about how to write this novel, how to talk about the gravity, uh, the depravity, the horror of what followed. But equally, as we've already said, the evidence of the human spirit and compassion, can you give us some sense of how you chose to shape your novel and the thought processes when you're handling an affair of this kind of magnitude?
2: It was a difficult story to tell, and I think the framing of the point of view was a crucial first decision. So to take Micah's account of this fictional child on board, but I also weave in some of the stories of the real people on board. And this was a decision I made very early on, which was necessary. Previously I had only written fictional characters. They might have been based on real people in history, but I still felt it was at a slight remove for me. But in this one, I'm looking at real people. I had some information, not very much, but things like the nickname of some of the crew members. And for me, that's enough potentially to spark off a feeling that I could try and capture some kind of character in that way. But what became really apparent quite early on was that the story of the Batavia didn't just end when Pelsart, the upper merchant, returned and found the survivors and heard their stories, it went on for much longer after that. And so we effectively lost the ship. We don't know where she is for hundreds of years until the wreck is found again. And so that's another kind of later story that's fascinating. So I realised that potentially there were two children telling the story, which gave me a dual timeline, which allowed me to continue telling the ongoing story of the Batavian. and how potentially we might look at the story in a more contemporary time. So that brings in Gill, the second child, who in 1989 is landed on the same island to live with his grandfather, who's a crayfisher. And so we have that kind of all round picture of the Batavia, not just from the eyes of Micah, who's actually in amongst it as it's happening, but also from Gill, who has that remove from history. So I think in a way that felt like a more balanced account somehow also apart from the kind of duality of the child in an adult world we have two children telling the story and time behaves differently in both periods just to add another layer of complexity of actually putting it together so we have Micah's journey happens over a much longer period than Gil's comparatively short time in the island before his narrative kind of unravels so again it was connecting the two different strands and there were a few objects really that helped me to anchor the two together and to link them.
1: As a historian, as someone who writes nonfiction, I'm always fascinated talking to historical novelists and the decisions that you make in terms of choosing to invent characters or to write about those who actually lived. And I suppose I've got two questions here. One is something I often ask historical novelists. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to those who lived? And do you feel any sense of concern about meddling with their story? And the second is how closely do you feel that you stick to the sources that you have? Is it vital for you to be very firmly adhering to them or is it absolutely crucial for you to feel like you're really adding something imaginative to the story?
2: For me, it was really crucial that I honoured the stories as much as I knew of the survivors. And again, we only have really scant information. We have artefacts and we have the two written account from the men. I should say the second account was written by the predicant, who was a preacher on board in the form of a letter. So we really only have this letter and we have Pelsart's account. And obviously there's biases with both of those. So for me, yes, I was basing it on real people who had Lived and where I use a character or base a character on a real person, I try and adhere to the facts that I know. Right at the back of the book, you have a little summary of which of the characters were real. But I think also I felt very strongly that I was telling the story from a point of view that hadn't been looked at, the story that hadn't been told. And so for me, that kind of made me very passionate about how to approach it. I think where I am using a fact, I'm trying to be as accurate as I possibly can. And this is where that kind of big range of people... Now, I won't blame anyone for getting anything wrong. That will be me and that would be my departure from it. But I think where accuracy is obviously really important, but we're also dealing with immediacy and the lived experience and how do you replicate that. And I'm sure lots of historical novelists would have said, sometimes you just know so many facts, but you can't just shoehorn them all in because it doesn't give the reader the experience of the world. So you still have to be selective in terms of what you do use. But I think what I was trying to give is a sense of that lived experience wherever possible and how we could potentially enter that world through that act of imagination, really, but based on those tangible things that are discovered. The other thing is, as you say, about from the outset was this collaboration, really. So I was coming across people who'd worked, historians, archaeologists, marine archaeologists, who were really passionate about this story and telling it in all different ways. So I feel like my version is just another version of the story. And if it leads the reader into finding out more, then that's a brilliant thing too.
1: In both children's stories, there is this presence of a dark, sinister eel-like creature, which seems to step straight out of folklore and myth is this a story that existed in the 17th century and what led you to include it in the novel?
2: I think I really always love to have some element of folklore and some element of storytelling I think this comes from my background I come from a very big Irish family of lots of storytellers and from a very young child I was fascinated by ideas of folklore. So really I was casting around again for something that would give a sense of how to talk about the children's trauma and both of them are having very difficult times on this island. Gil is very much an outcast in a way and so it was trying to really give a shape to these children's lived experiences, to their fear. So I came across the idea of the bullaback from one of the historians I was working with And then I realised there was a comparable creature in Indigenous Australian folklore, the bunyip. And I thought, this is too much of a coincidence. It feels like it's universal, this idea of a water creature who has a function to steer children away from water, maybe as simple as that. But really, as the novel progresses, it was just a really trying to find a way to give shape to that lived experience and the way that children can potentially process trauma in quite a different way to adults. Again following these like strange water creatures almost allowed me into further areas of the ship and the island that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise I think. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Well I have one last question for you which is I think one of the marks of a great novel is that it stays with you long after you've read it and I find myself thinking about those on board the night ship, as you call it, contemplating their experiences. And I wonder if the same is true for you as the person who wrote it. And if so, whose story has left the most indelible mark on you?
2: that's really tricky it has stayed with me just from the point of fact there's so much research and one of the delights was also meeting people around the world who are so invested in that story from all different points of view and i've stayed in contact with quite a few of them which has been wonderful there are too many stories to go into i think also there's later stories too so the stories of the crayfishes that would have been living on the island and using it as a seasonal base which gave rise to Gill's story so I got a lot of those oral accounts from the library in Perth and so there are so many stories that kind of make up that whole collective history but I think certainly a few of the key people that I maybe the characters on in Micah's time one's a particular cabin boy I don't want to give any spoilers away so I think I'll just say Little Smirt I think (laughs) is one of the stories that stands out for me definitely
1: well This has been universally loved. It's a wonderful story. It only came out July 2022. And I highly recommend my listeners to pick up a copy because it's a really fantastic book. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at notjusttudors or by email notjustthetudors at historyhit.com.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built... A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.